good afternoon, everyone, uh, to those of you in the auditorium, as well as uh, those of you joining us on uh, Zoom. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, to have this afternoon for this uh, uh, Middle East uh, Institute event, Mr. Avi Berkowitz uh, with us for one hour and a half. Um, Mr. Berkowitz was a former assistant to the president and special representative for international negotiations uh, during uh, the presidency. Uh, of Mr. Donald Trump. Uh, and in that capacity, uh, we'll uh, have the great pleasure to listen to his uh, uh, views, his insights on the Abraham Accords, uh, as the title of the, uh, uh, the conference suggests, the past, the present, and the future. Uh, and this is a, a very timely uh, topic, as uh, I'm sure we'll have a lot of questions uh, on that. Uh, for those of you who are on Zoom, uh, if you want to ask questions uh, during the uh, during the Q and A, please send uh, your questions in the chat box at MEI events, and then uh, we'll coordinate here uh, to uh, to uh, ask the question directly uh, to our speaker. Uh, without further ado, uh, Mr. Berkovitz, floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, so thank you, thank you for uh, for being here as well, and thank you to the Institute for hosting us, and uh, this is actually my first time in Singapore, so it's been uh, really a wonderful visit and learning a lot about the country. I'm here with my wife, Gabrielle, and uh, we're really uh, enjoying and experiencing a lot. Uh, so I thought perhaps maybe for a few minutes I'd talk about uh, just how I came to get involved in the Abraham Accords, uh, specifically uh, working in the government as the special representative for international negotiations. Uh, I, I, I started in probably the most unique way possible. I, I was brought to the government uh, initially as the assistant to Jared Kushner, and I met him playing basketball. And so from time to time, people will ask me, you know, for career advice. And I, I always start with work on your jump shot. You really want to make it. Uh, and I don't know, sometimes that works better than others, I guess. But uh, So yeah, so I, I came to the government uh, after having been on the Trump campaign for a few months towards the end. I worked on the digital aspect. Um, the president, at the time, the, the, you know, the, the team did not have a, a super robust Facebook strategy. And I had the idea to take his rallies live on Facebook which seems like a somewhat obvious idea now, but in 2016, there weren't, there wasn't that much of that. And, you know, one of the interesting things we found was that uh, we were getting roughly a million to a million and a half people watching his, his speeches. And, you know, you, you could really see the, the excitement then, and it was hard to know who would win, but to me, it was really interesting to see the, the statistics leading into it and, and the excitement around him as a candidate. Uh, so prior to, to the campaign, I had been at law school and I had not spent really a moment of my life thinking that I would find myself negotiating uh, in the Middle East until I was actually a few months later working in the White House. Uh, I started off as Jared Kushner's assistant. I was promoted a year and a half later to be his advisor. And then ultimately, in September of 2019, uh, the person who had been the special representative before me, a guy by the name of Jason Greenblatt, uh, he departed and I replaced him. And at the time we had spent about two and a half years preparing the vision for peace, which was the president's vision for peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And due to tremendous complications in the Israeli political system, the plan had actually not been released up until that point. And Many of us on the team were actually wondering if we would ever find the opportunity to release the plan. Uh, luckily, we were fortunate to see an opening in January of 2020, January 28th specifically. Uh, we put out the plan, and one of the elements of the plan was a, I wouldn't say a call for, although this became a highly contentious question amongst the team, but the possibility for the application of Israeli sovereignty over areas of the West Bank which is referred to as annexation, and the recognition of the US of that annexation. And that created a tremendous tension, uh, really, in the foreign policy world as to whether the US would allow for that recognition or not. 
And that was something that I spent numerous months of my life debating with numerous countries and the representatives over about what the US would and would not allow, and, and as well as with, in negotiations with the Israelis. Um, and through that tension, actually, uh, I believe, came the Abraham Accords. The question of whether the annexation would or would not occur uh, created an opening through that tension, which ultimately brought apart the negotiations between you know, Jared, myself, and Yusuf Al-Oteba, the Emirati ambassador, as well as Ron Germer, the ambassador on the Israeli side. And you know, a little known fact is the Abraham Accords were in essence negotiated in a month, the first agreement between Israel and the UAE. My, I went to Israel in the end of June to meet with the prime minister, not to discuss the Abraham Accords or what would ultimately become the Abraham Accords, but actually to talk about annexation. And I was, I was there with the current ambassador at the time, Ambassador David Friedman, and we met with the prime minister for three, three different meetings over four days. And those negotiations were not about the Abraham Accords. They were actually about whether the US would agree to the recognition of Israeli law to areas of the West Bank, uh, of the application of Israeli law to the areas of the West Bank. And in that conversation, I actually, failed. I was unable to make any progress with the prime minister for a compromise where we felt the Palestinians would get, you know, a significant enough uh, progress from the Israeli side. And through that failure, uh, you know, I, I had had a conversation with Jared where, you know, perhaps there would be another opportunity here. And, and there arose the opportunity to talk about normalization with the Emiratis. And I returned home from Israel, actually, at the end of June, crestfallen. I thought that we had not had success in our negotiations, but with the hope that perhaps instead of going forward with annexation, we could have a conversation with the Emiratis. And in the car, actually, believe it or not, in the airport, I, was, I, so I, I landed in Newark, New Jersey uh, at like 4 a.m. My flight to Washington, D.C. was until about 8.30. And at around 10 a.m., I'm in the car, heading back to the White House after, and I received a call from the UAE ambassador, Yusuf Al-Oteba. And he said to me that he had a pretty interesting thought. Uh, you know, I said, I'm all in. And he said, how about in exchange for stopping or not going forward with the annexation, we talk about normalization between the UAE and Israel. And I, you know, I couldn't believe my ears. I had had the relatively similar conversation with the prime minister the day before. And, you know, I went to the White House, I briefed Jared, and within them a month from that day, that was July 1st, which was designated by the Israeli government as annexation day, within a month, we had basically sketched out what a normalization agreement could look like. And it was announced on August 13th. But anyways, I'm sure we could, we could get into all of the details as we, as we go forward here. But so the, so, so, you know, the lessons that I, that I take away, you know, from that experience uh, is that things can change. They can change very quickly, very positively, and opportunity is really, you know, is waiting to be found if there's the right will and I think the right teams uh, working on things. So, uh, so hopefully that, that helps people as they're going forward as well. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Berkowitz, for this uh, introduction, and uh, you uh, got us uh, directly into the uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, let's say the nuts and bolts of the uh, the the, uh, the agreement and uh, how it was uh, dealt. And I, I think it's a it's a fascinating uh, introduction. Uh, I'll I'll be the one uh, using the privilege of being the moderator to uh, ask you uh, questions, and I'm sure we'll we'll have uh, uh, many others coming. Uh, the thing I find interesting in your introduction is that you remind us something that we may forget, which is the uh, the role of the annexation um, annexation plan uh, at that time of the uh, Netanyahu government. Yeah, uh, and it's fascinating to come back to that because actually the the, the issue of the annexation is back in uh, the uh, in the discussion. Uh, or at least was in the discussion when Netanyahu uh, built it, it's his new coalition. Yeah. The fact that, as I understand from your introduction, the Emiratis went on board with the Abraham Accords because there was the idea of 
kind of a trade-off between cancellation of the annexation leads to the Abraham Accords. Do you think that the current situation we see with uh, the coalition in Israel uh, could actually uh, jeopardize the, um, uh, the Emirati uh, support to the uh, Accords? We don't see that now, but do you think that because at the, the, the beginning it was this idea of annexation, annexation versus normalization, uh, any new Israeli uh, move towards annexation could jeopardize the Accords? Yeah, I, I think it's a very fair question. Um, you know, my person—I'm no longer a member of any governments, and I, I don't, uh, you know, talk to other governments about their future uh, plans with other governments. Uh, but from as an observer, I've been really confident that the accords—I um, think we're past the stage of fear that they would, you know, cease to exist for one specific action by either country. I think you could always imagine a scenario where you know, behaviors are, are so complex and the region is such a volatile one to begin with that it could create an issue that could threaten the Accords. But I think from everything that I've seen, I'm, I feel secure. And you know, as somebody who finished negotiating the last element of, you know, parts of the agreements in January of 2021, uh, only to handle, hand them off to a new administration, it's, it's obviously a difficult position to find yourself in when the thing that you, you know, out, outside of my personal life and my professional career, the thing that I care about the most uh, is something that you don't have a hand in shaping any longer, which is a, it's a complicated place to find oneself. Um, and yet, and so you could imagine, I, I follow it quite closely. Uh, I feel pretty confident that uh, that at least as it relates to the Emirati, Bahrainis, and Morocco, uh, the Accords are, are an extremely strong position. What about Sudan? You didn't <laughs> mention Sudan. Is it on purpose or? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, look, you know, Sudan is in a very complicated place, and and I, I even when I whenever I talk about the Abraham Accords, I think it's important to distinguish. You know, sometimes people will will say, "What what is a normalization agreement?" and it's really country specific. It's not necessarily defined, you know, once you say, hey, I'd like for you to normalize relations with this country, that there's some sort of roadmap as to how to do it. And if you look at Egypt and Jordan, I think that's a pretty good example where while there was tremendous progress on the conflict side of things, it was somewhat slower on the person to person, sometimes referred to as a cold peace, because what actually is a normalization is extremely dependent on the will of the parties and the people who are necessary components of its implementation. And so, you know, Sudan, stepping back, was always going to be a different situation. You know, the first thing I was working on with Jared when we were negotiating the accords with the Emiratis and actually Morocco, which we thought might have been the first country to normalize back in the day, uh, was direct flights. And the thing that I cared most about was always people-to-people -people connections. I thought, you know, the banking system, if people are getting on flights to come, they'll figure out how to connect because they want people to spend money. And embassies, well, you're going to have to have visas. So, and if there's an issue, you want to make sure that a person has a place to go to. But you got to get the people there. And so when I was, you know, when we were thinking of normalization, we didn't necessarily even imagine such a complete agreement in its initial stages. We were hoping to do piecemeal to get direct flights, um, specifically with Morocco. And so the, you know, the beauty of it is that when you go from zero to whatever you can imagine, you find yourself hearing about tremendous successes. But each country will therefore do it at their own speed, at their own pace, and with their own, you know, relevant considerations. And so Sudan, you know, the expectation was not to have tourists going from Israel on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, because Sudan had just been removed from the, you know, the terror list and 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 amongst other uh, issues. So to see it now, you know, obviously the situation has devolved significantly. Um, and, and that's unfortunate for reasons that are larger than the Abraham Accords, uh, but it, it doesn't speak honestly either way to the success of the Abraham Accords because Sudan is in a different position. 
let me uh, uh, let me ask uh, another question before I, I see uh, uh, hands being raised. Uh, the Palestinians, because the, um, uh, and I'm sure you were expecting that question at a certain Certainly. point. Um, and I understand that you were uh, in the White House even before the Abraham Accords, when there was first the uh, uh, the discussions on the Israeli-Palestinian peace process and what was called, I think, the, the deal of the century at that time. I think it was negatively referred to as the deal <laughs> of the century by the, some critics, but... Yeah. Uh, uh, so the, the question is, seen from the, out, from, from the inside, how did you uh, how did you see uh, the, uh, the the Palestinian reaction to uh, the Abraham Accords? Because the the official the public uh, response was extremely negative, yeah. uh, and the, the relations between the Palestinian Authority and UAE and Bahrain have been uh, actually very difficult since then. So, yeah. what is your take on uh, the, the the relations with the the Palestinians uh, during that time? Yeah, I think it's an extremely important point, and it's. It, it has numerous components to it. I think perhaps taking a step back as role, you know, in my role as the special representative, my responsibility was actually to work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict first. So working on the vision for peace, the plan that the president put forward in 2020 was my initial priority. And it's something that I, I care deeply about. Unfortunately, in December of 2017, after the announcement to recognize Jerusalem, uh, the Palestinians and the leadership uh, refused to publicly engage with us. So from December of 2017, um, uh, you know, we, December of, this, of 2017, uh, we did not have public meetings any longer with the Palestinian Authority. We did have, you know, back channel conversations, which were very valuable, uh, but publicly we did not have conversations. And so you could imagine in September of 2019, when I came in to officially take on this role, and you're tasked to negotiate between the Israeli and the Palestinians, and one side for now roughly two years uh, is not talking to you, it makes your task very difficult. Um, you know, I think we were able to succeed in other ways. But as it relates to the Palestinians, you know, unfortunately, we did not make any progress. And I think it's important to uh, to understand that the lack of progress does not mean that the situation remains a constant, right? And I think, I think it's important for anybody who is a supporter of peace to, to almost, you know, take that in very seriously because, you know, I, th I, think, I think the, the decision to not engage with us has had negative repercussions for the people who, who live you know, in this current unfortunate situation and have not seen the parties actually sitting since 2017, constructively engaging in dialogue. And it's impossible to have peace between the parties if there is no, you know, international effort to mediate between them, in my opinion. So, you know, just from the get-go, it's really, it's a, it's a, it's a really bad situation. And I, I feel for the Palestinian people. Uh, I'd also say that there's, you know, probably one of the main critiques of the Accords, which I think it's really important to address because I'm a staunch advocate and supporter for, for it. I, you know, worked intimately on its creation. I think it's important to, you know, acknowledge the criticisms and try to take them on head on and let, you know, wise people come away with whatever they think is accurate. So probably the biggest critique that I've heard of the Abraham Accords from those who are pro-Palestinian is that it has weakened the position of the Palestinians vis-a-vis -vis Israel in an effort to have a negotiation. That's, that's, and anyone who has other, I'm happy to address them as well, but that's what I have, have constantly heard, that it, is, it has weakened the, Israeli, the Palestinian position, and the argument goes that the Palestinians had this veto right, in essence, over normalization between Israel and other Arab countries. By having other Arab countries normalized with Israel, this veto, right, the ability to withhold progress between Israel and Arab countries is semi, at least semi, removed from the Palestinians, thereby weakening their ability to get Israel to come to the table and negotiate. That's, I think, the argument in its most pure form. Um, and, and therefore, people are, would say that normalization could theoretically not be a good thing. You know, so 
it's interesting because I had not yet seen that argument and perhaps it used to exist in the late 70s and the 90s when Egypt and Jordan you know, made peace uh, with Israel. But assuming that we'll just, we'll put that to the side for a moment um, and we'll say, you know, okay, things have changed. That's, that's become part of the norm. I think it misunderstands the, what the Abraham Accords are and are not. Uh, they are normalization agreements, but in order for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I think, to progress in a serious and substantive way, it's important that the parties come to the table and negotiate in good faith. And an element of good faith is sometimes understanding your relative bargaining positions and the opposing party as well. And so the Abraham Accords, what it's shown the Palestinians, I believe, is that their position is actually weaker than I think they had thought it was. I don't think it changed their position because had it been so, the Abraham Accords would not have occurred. I like to think that we're the greatest negotiators of all time and you know, perhaps we, we're, we're pretty good, but ultimately the position of the Palestinians because of the lack of progress and because the region has changed so significantly I don't think that there is a country that Israel would want to normalize with, that it could not normalize with at this point because of the Palestinian issue. Meaning, if the US, which I think is the most relevant partner in normalization, is capable with its team of getting the parties in the room and creating the right terms, I think every single relevant country that, that Israel would like to normalize with is capable of joining the Abraham Accords. Therefore, if you are a member you know, of the Palestinian Authority, or if you're a member of somebody who cares about peace between Israel and the Palestinians, it's really important, I think, for them to understand where their position actually is. And I think that's the only way that the parties will ever reach a serious, substantive, long-term agreement. And that's why, I think if I were a member of the government, what I would be doing is I would continue this progress with the Abraham Accords and help additional countries join. And in time, I think leadership in the Palestinian side would realize that as more countries join, this veto in essence becomes non-existent because the veto currently is, in my opinion, roughly non-existent. And so using it as a sort of piece in the negotiations no longer makes sense in my in my opinion. Thank you. The, the, the qu next question actually uh, from uh, one of our participants on uh, Zoom, uh, Samina Yasmin, who's asking actually two questions, uh, uh, which are basically, what are the factors uh, that prompted, in your view, the UAE to respond favorably to the idea of normalizations of relations uh, with Israel? And the second question is similar, but for Israel, why did Israel agree uh, to or to propose the idea of uh, this um, this agreement with the UAE? Yeah. So, you know, I think the UAE for a while has seen Israel as a really, really positive thing. I think they, I think the, the leadership was supportive of normalization with Israel for some time. It's no longer a secret. Jared Kushner writes about it in his book that in 2019, he was approached by the Emirati ambassador with interest in working through some sort of agreement that could lead to normalization. So, and the announcement only occurred in August of 2020. So uh, unfortunately it was actually the Israeli side because of the political upheaval in 2019 and 20, in the early parts of 2020, that made it difficult for us to actually negotiate an agreement, uh, so much so that we did not think it possible in the early part, in the end of 2019 and the early portion of 2020, and we stopped working on it. We were distracted, of course, by COVID, putting out the peace plan. Um, so I think there was interest on the Emirati side for, for a significant period of time. And I think to their credit, they've shown themselves as a place of tolerance and really a leader in the Middle East in, in making these decisions. Specifically, the, the thought that comes to mind is in 2019, the Pope visited and they announced the Abrahamic Family House, which is this 
area, which has a synagogue, a church, and a mosque all in one complex, and it's a beautiful place. If anyone can go see it, I advise you to try. Um, but there's, it shows that there's been this long-term plan by leadership to show the world that they're you know, open and, and ready to engage constructively. On the Israeli side, you know, there was tremendous interest in normalization for forever. This is something that they've been pursuing, you know, regional acceptance to us, you know, from the US seems like a concept that's very obvious and makes a ton of sense. And I don't understand why anyone would, would not do it. But in Israel, they've in essence been on an island of sorts surrounded by countries that had not recognized them until the 70s and 94 with Jordan. Uh, 96. Um, and so, you know, for Israel, this has been something that they've been pursuing for as long as, as, as they could. Uh, but finding the right mediator, I think, was, was probably the thing that had held up both sides. And, you know, right after we negotiated the accords, I, I was talking to in an interview, and, and they asked me for some of the, you know, what, what is the value creation here? And I think it's really important that the US always remain an extremely important player in the Middle East. And by having the Abraham Accord as a success story, it, I think, reasserts the US in this position to lead the mediation efforts in, in the Middle East, which I think is of vital importance. Um, and, it, and, and there are other countries who would love to fill that vacuum without the US there. Thank you very much. We have the first question from the audience. And uh, I just want to uh, reflect on a very strange asymmetry. Um, the United States and Israel are uh, justifiably focused on those countries that are the Abraham Accord countries and would like to extend their circle. But there are two neighbors for Israel who are, I believe, the most crucial for any future vision of Israel living in peace with the entire Middle East. And these are Egypt and Jordan. Uh, Egypt and Jordan are not, per se, Abraham Accord countries. Uh, how would you work to uh, quell this asymmetry? And how, how would you work mainly to create more people-to-people -people relations? Because as uh, the latest uh, uh, studies reveal, uh, public opinion researchers, Unfortunately, there is still a yeah. abysmally low acceptance in the Arab public opinion for the Abraham Accords. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Sometimes when something is new and exciting, it gets a lot of the attention. And some of the really great work that had been done before us should not be overlooked. And, and I think it deserves uh, continued attention. So my first answer to that is, I think the Abraham Accords has actually helped in many ways already perform the act that you're asking. So it used to be that if you wanted to fly directly from Egypt to Israel, there were direct flights, but it wasn't on a plane that was labeled. The plane would be, you know, no, no company uh, along the side. Egypt Air recently announced that they were going to be having, you know, public direct flights to Israel. And if you're just looking at that, that might seem somewhat odd. Why all of a sudden? And I think the answer is because now that the Emirates and Etihad and Fly Dubai and El Al, right, are flying quite openly amongst Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Tel Aviv, it creates this space, which everybody in the Arab world reads about this in the news, right? They, they see this information as well as us. And they say, ah, okay, I guess it's okay to fly from an Arab country to Israel. And so I give the Emiratis a tremendous amount of credit because what they've done is they've reinvigorated, at least in this small way initially, this opportunity for, for the Egyptians to feel we can do this as well. Um, I'll also say that success is really, you know, momentum is a beautiful thing and success tends to inspire it. So, you know, when we announced the Abraham Accords, Many people question, you know, would this be real normalization? Would the success take take you know hold? Now there's, I think, roughly eleven daily flights between the Emirates and Israel round trip. Well, 
what comes after that is people actually going to these countries and making deals and spending a lot of money. Well, then now every single few months, you hear about the billions of dollars in trade that occurs between the Emirates and Israel. Well, if you are an Egyptian who has a business that you think could be viable in Israel, now you're starting to think perhaps this could work for me as well. And if you're a Jordanian, the same, the same thing holds, holds true. So I think naturally the success of the Accords will empower other countries in the region, those that are signatories and those that are not yet signatories in their own ways to get more involved. So that will be a natural, I think, flow. And in a few years, I think when we look back, we'll easily be able to tell, to point to numerous examples. But there should also be a concerted effort by the US. And that was something that had been worked on when we were leaving office, which was this idea of like an Abraham Accords Fund, which was a, a specified pool of capital working. I think it was the idea was to work with the the DFC, which at the time was run by Adam Bowler, which is basically like a US sovereign wealth fund in essence, which goes and is able to spend money in other countries, but not with the thought process of maximizing returns, but maximizing you know, the success of whatever the dollar is meant you know, to, to build. Um, and so I, I think an idea like that, that not only you know, is, is being used in Abraham Accords countries, but also partakes with other countries that have relationships with Israel, could be an incentivizing factor to countries to join the Abraham Accords, but also help those that are members show their people that this is actually worthwhile and doing so will improve your daily life. And, and that's why we're at such an important moment in the Abraham Accords, because every single country is looking. They're saying, you guys decided to make peace with Israel. How'd it go, right? What's your experience been? How has the US response been? How have your people taken this? And so its success, I don't think it will fall apart as we, as we discussed, but its success is in its implementation. Its, its real success comes in the way that it impacts the daily lives of people in the region. And the more people that get involved and gain from it, the more they're inclined to want it to stay and to encourage their friends you know, the, one of the beautiful things about visiting the UAE is when you're there, you see people from Saudi who come to visit. You see people from Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, right? It's, it's a great, you know, sort of oasis in, this, in that area. And of course, people from the region are going to come visit it. Well, when they're there, they're going to bump into Israelis, people that they may not have an opportunity to do, or they could perhaps in the U.S., but you know, it's hard to sometimes in, in such a large space to meet these people. You know, the UAE is a relatively small place. And so I was there the other week and everywhere I went, I heard Hebrew. You know, I, you pick it up, that's a new phenomenon. And so as more and more people come and as more and more people engage with the Accords, those that are watching it are going to say, this was a success, let's encourage our leadership. Or they're going to say, you know, it was nice. I'm glad it worked out for them, but it's not for us. And so I'm constantly really asking people to, to engage in any way that they can because everybody is watching to see how it'll, how it'll go. But I do think a, a very specified pool of capital that was meant to encourage investment between countries that are signatories or have relationships with Israel specifically could create tremendous value to Jordan and Egypt uh, and there was an opportunity the other day, I, I don't know where it currently stands, where I think Jordan was going to provide electricity uh, to, the, to Israel and Israel was going to provide water and the UAE would pay to, to actually build the plants in each of the countries as an investment so that, you know, Jordan gains from the Abraham Accords, you know, the UAE gains from it. Uh, and, and so ideas like that, that have the U.S. support, I think, are, are extremely important. And I think, uh, I think will happen more and more as time progresses, hopefully. Let me uh, continue on the question of uh, the future of the agreements, because we, uh, I think, uh, detailed a lot on the, the, the past. And uh, one question that also you probably anticipated was Saudi Arabia. Um, yeah. And what would it take? in your view, 
to get Saudi Arabia to normalize relations uh, yeah. with Israel. So, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's the deal? Uh, I like a good deal, right? So, <laughs> yeah. I, the truth is that uh, I think Saudi Arabia deserves a lot of credit for the current accords. Um, you know, one of the one of the most important elements of the accords is the ability to fly over Saudi Arabia, their airspace. That was something that we had to negotiate. And it's something that the current administration deserves credit for because they've uh, managed to get them to allow even further eastward travel. Um, I think Al can now go to India that, that they weren't able to initially. We did have, we did, Saudi Arabia did allow for flights over India in our agreement as well, but I think now Al is able to go. So, I, and I, you know, I think that's wonderful. And I think the current administration deserves a lot of success for that. Um, you know, but imagine if you were to take a three hour flight because you're able to fly over Saudi Arabia to go from the UAE to Israel. And now it's a seven hour flight because you have to go all the way around Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman, and then cut up that way. The expense, the ability, the desire of people to travel would decrease exponentially. So Saudi Arabia, I think, deserves a lot of credit um, for, for already making the Abraham Accords more successful than it otherwise would have been. Um, I think the specific asks that they've asked for, um, you know, I've seen reporting on it. And because I have personally been involved in those discussions, I'd prefer not to say what the specific asks are. But ultimately, I think it speaks to a broader point, which is there's a willingness to do it, right? And the question now becomes, what is the ask? And is it possible? But is it, but is it something that could theoretically happen if the conditions set were met? The answer is yes. And I think that's an extraordinarily important achievement and progress. I think the Abraham Accords deserve some credit for that. I think the current administration deserves some credit for that. Um, and and I'm, I pray daily that they join. And, and to me, the Abraham Accords should not be a partisan issue. It should be something that both parties feel a sense of ownership over. And the best way to do that is for additional countries to join. But even moving the ball forward in any substantive way, be it direct flights or overflight, additional overflight like they've added, uh, I think I think further entrenches this concept of bipartisanship, which is a necessary component because there are years where either I or Republicans are not going to be involved in leadership, right, as is right now. And so you rely on the other opposing party, right, to take a sense of ownership in it or else progress does not occur. And, and, so, and so I hope that, that they you know, continue to, to, to make those efforts to, to improve it. But as it relates specifically to Saudi Arabia, I'll probably hold off the, the specific uh, terms, but I do think an agreement is extremely achievable. And I hope it happens. <laughs> yes, uh, next question. Uh, wait for the microphone. Sorry. Hello, I'm Misha Montero. I'm also at uh, Middle East Institute. Thank you so much for all of this. Learned a lot. Uh, quick question. Uh, do you have any like major concerns or do you see any threats in the future for the longevity of the Abraham Accords? Yeah. Um... You know, I, I think that with every passing day, the, it, it gets more and more implemented in all of these different countries. I do this thing where I search the Abraham Accords on Google probably a few times a day, but I do like a 24-hour search because I'd like to see, and, and anybody who tries this, I don't think a day goes by where there isn't in some way a positive update. I think today's was that, the Times of Israel reported that uh, Morocco had an excavation where, thanks to the Abraham Accords, they were able to find some relics from you know, Jewish history. And because of the integration, now Israel was able to excavate it. I'm not a geologist. I don't know how to do these things. I'm impressed with the people who do. Uh, but in, they were able to, I guess, take it and remove it and bring it to Israel. And, and so a day does not go by um, where I don't hear of, of an important 
positive step. I think Yeshiva University just announced that they're doing something with the UAE University in honor of Israel's 75th anniversary or, or, or some, some progress. And that matters in regards to your point because as you further connect these wires, you, you make it harder to upend uh, the agreements. And you know, one of the, the big, I find it to be a very funny complication, which is we refer to the agreements as peace agreements. And one of the big criticisms is that, well, actually, there had not been hostilities, so it's not a peace agreement. These countries, in essence, had not been at war. And I think the obvious, you know, it's a somewhat tautological answer is they'd also never been at peace, right? But assuming that we will will take that uh, at its face value, you know, the, the ceasing of hostilities is, of course, extraordinarily important. It's something we should all strive for. What makes a normalization agreement, though, in my opinion, fascinating is traditionally when you have countries you know, you, you think of the current example of Russia, Ukraine, they had a relationship prior to this. It wasn't a great one, uh, but they had a relationship. What I think is, is somewhat unique about the Abraham Accords is it takes countries, and I, I don't know of other examples at the moment, although I'm sure there are, where they had no public interactions. They had no connection between their banking systems. They didn't have direct flights. They didn't have embassies. They didn't have phone, the ability for phone calls to be made between the countries, despite one being plus 972 as their country code and one being plus 971. And you take what is, in essence, nothing, and you have the ability to build from scratch whatever it is that you make of it. And obviously, you know, call it whatever you want. I think that's a fascinating opportunity and one that you know, we'll perhaps look back on and review and we'll say, you know, perhaps they could have done a little bit better of a job integrating their farming sectors or they could have done a better, but they're going to try. They're going to try on each and every single one of these sectors. And with that creates political strength because each one of those groups creates a desire to retain what they've built. And that's what makes it so hard to create a normalization agreement is that it's hard to know what you're missing out on until you've built these connections. You know, what does it mean to Israel to have, uh, you know, the influx of now capital from the Emiratis? It's hard to put that into, you know, statistics or, or to really understand it until you see billions of dollars of investment coming into your country. And it's hard for the Emiratis to know if, Israel's, if Israelis will enjoy visiting, well, it turns out, I think nearly a million Israelis have now traveled from Israel to the UAE. I think the last time somebody put out a number, it might've been 700,000 people or so have gone, but I, I, that was a while ago. So I imagine with 11 or so daily flights back and forth. And so that's why time is our, is our friend here in a way, because with each day, those wires get further and further connected. Um, and it's why, it's, I think, incumbent on all, you know, it's, it's important that we all try our best to encourage these connections because that is the best way to ensure that, that it succeeds. And I hope it does for us. We have a question uh, from one of our participants on Zoom, David, who's uh, from the School of Public Health. And he's asking, uh, and this relates to the discussion on uh, the, uh, uh, the idea of uh, U.S. Uh, retrenchment and uh, possibly uh, the U.S. leaving the Middle East. Right. Uh, and at the same time, China becoming uh, a major actor. Yeah. Uh, the Middle East Institute in Singapore in particular looks a lot at uh, this uh, game of U.S.-China uh, competition, uh, whatever we want to call it, in the Middle East. But what do you make of the recent... Uh, deal that China brokered between yeah. Saudi Arabia and Iran, in particular looking at uh, all the other developments that you just covered, do you think that this this is a zero-sum game? It's either... Uh, I hope not. Yeah. So <laughs> how, how, how do you see this deal first, and how do you see that deal impacting possibly yeah. the momentum of the Abraham Accords? Yeah. Um... Figure this would be a, a topic, and it makes sense for it to be. 
uh, you know, it's it's probably the the most important current analysis necessary. Um, perhaps not so much for the current signatories, but certainly for additional signatories for the Abraham Accords. And the reason that's so is if you are a country in the Middle East, you have lived through tremendous volatility over the last forever. And therefore, you've come to learn of the value of security. Security is something that perhaps at times countries can take for granted if you haven't you know, seen too much of it, too much hostility. Um, but security is something that every leader you know, wakes up thinking about and goes to sleep thinking about. And any single leader wants the U.S. Uh, the U.S. to play a role, and so the U.S.'s role in in in, in something of, of that import um, can't be overlooked. And the fear that the U.S. may be leaving an area, and I, you know, I try very hard not to to criticize current administrations because I know what it was like to work in an administration and how difficult it is. And I also know that I don't know everything that's going on any longer as a result because. It used to be a week was like a year. So much can happen within a day that you know you've left for a week. You're out of the loop in a way that you can't even imagine. So imagine now having been over two years out of the government. So I know that there's things that I do not know, and I know that there's things that they've already forgotten, and people that are currently working in the administration that I did not know. Uh, but so so I, I don't I I can't. I think be critical because I don't know enough to. But if there is this perception that the US is in actuality, you know, finding itself more and more removed from the region, that is something that every single country in the world will take note of. And it's something specifically that countries in the Middle East will try to make sense of in whatever way they can. And one of the complicated realities of foreign policy is that countries have options. And so if you think that if I sell, you know, certain security, you know, defensive military equipment to one country, that's that's sort of the last that they'll think of this, they'll always have contingency plans. If the US decides not to go forward with this sale, are there other countries that perhaps will provide a lesser but somewhat capable alternative because my current situation is potentially untenable. And so every country is constantly thinking about this. Every country is evaluating it. And so if the US is, in fact, at least giving an appearance to other countries that they're leaving or not going to be as involved, then other countries will look to other, you know, so then countries in the Middle East will look to other countries to perhaps fill that void. And there's also not a international consensus on what is and is not okay, right? You find countries in Europe going forward with things that perhaps the US would not like them to go forward with. And then you find countries in the Middle East that are that are going forward. Uh, Turkey is like, I guess, an obvious example when they were purchasing. Uh, and so we ultimately stopped the F-35 sale to them. And so because there is this lack of you know, complete control over where other countries will go, you are not the only game in town. And so you have to conduct your foreign policy with an understanding that there are other options, there are other alternatives. And to some countries, it's an ex existential question. So if you are slow, or if you are not, you know, not slow, you're not quick to act, and if you find yourself having congressional complications, which is a reality in the US, those kind of other countries, even if they have a desire to engage constructively with you, they may feel, correctly or otherwise, an existential threat to themselves and need to act accordingly. And so when you look at, you know, I, I, I don't like to make it specific to any country, but when you look at the Middle East, if the US does find itself more and more removed, there will be this vacuum. And countries like China are smart enough to understand this vacuum and to potentially capitalize on it. And, and so I think, I think it's a significant risk. I think it's something that I hope the US is heavily focused on at the moment. Um, and each one of those decisions makes it more difficult for countries 
to engage with the Abraham Accords, right? So if you have a very close relationship with Iran, that of course complicates matters with Israel. Um, but you know, this is this is something that I'm sure people are spending many hours of their days working on. But I am no longer in a position to impact it. So I'll just end with this, this question, with this thought, which is. I believe in foreign policy to be extraordinarily important to any any country's act. Unfortunately, it tends to not get the same level of interest domestically as other things for obvious reasons. It's hard for people if it's not focused on specifically to think how it affects them, something that's happening in a far off land far away. And also countries have been burned by thinking that it affects them and going and getting involved in conflicts that perhaps were you know, not, the, not the appropriate path. And so when I think of foreign policy, uh, I think that a reality-based foreign policy is the most necessary form of foreign policy. And, and I think about it specifically as it relates to the Palestinians, not to move too far away from the point, which is, you know, when we were when we were negotiating with them, uh, they chose they chose not to engage with us. And I I was I was the member of the U.S. member, the representative of the Quartet, which is the U.N.-based organization. Organization is probably a strong word, but it's an element of the U.N. and the U.S. is represented as well as the U.N., the EU, and Russia. And I got a call once from the quartet when we were doing the negotiations where we'd like to all meet. There's not really necessarily a defined period. We all decide when it's time for us to have a conversation. And so we agreed. And there was tremendous criticism at the time of the annexation idea. It said, you know, there's violations of international law that are, comp that are complications to this. And any agreement that does not, you know, take into account this, the Palestinian position Okay, I heard them. I thought that was a very reasonable position. But I said to them in response, I said, you know, the current leadership of the Palestinian Authority is in year, I think at the time, 16 of a four-year term. What international authority do they have to be negotiating on behalf of the Palestinians? And, you know, the, the sort of the call went a little bit quiet. And the issue is, is that sometimes when we want to criticize the side that perhaps we are more inclined to you know, we forget that the rules are rarely applied evenly and consistently. And the reason that's so is that there's biases and there's, there's, there's different countries have different, you know, objectives. And I think there is a strong anti-Israel objective at the UN. I'll, I'll, I'll put that out there. Um, but I also think that reality is sometimes forgotten. And even if that argument that had been made to me at the quartet was a rational one. I think the response, if I, if my response were to be taken seriously, it would simply be impossible for the Israelis and the Palestinians to ever negotiate, because Hamas, right, that runs Gaza as a terrorist organization. By what authority would they have to work to? They haven't won an election in a pretty long time, and the one that they did is complicated at best. Uh, and the current leadership in the West Bank, right, is in year, I think, 18 or 19 of their four-year term. So, but those are the players that we have. Those are the people who ultimately are in the room that you have to contend with and negotiate with. And so reality, I always think, is, is something that tends to be forgotten, but is, is something that really should be infused in all conversations and negotiations. And, Hope that happens a little more. Let, let me ask you a, a, a question uh, that uh, we didn't really cover yet, which is the U.S.-Israeli relations. Uh, and the uh, Israel just celebrated its uh, seventy-five-year uh, anniversary. And recently, I, I believe the, the Economist has an, had an article about the current state of uh, the U.S.-Israeli relations, and in particular, there was a poll suggesting, I forgot the, the, the exact numbers, but that about half of the uh, uh, Democratic Party uh, members were uh, much more uh, critical about Israel than in the past. 
uh, that's less the case for the Republican uh, yeah. Party. But how do you see the, uh, the, the, the relationship evolving, especially now that uh, what we see over the last months uh, was uh, something maybe not unprecedented. There were tensions in the past, but the, the, there is the, the, the concern that uh, given the evolution of Israeli politics, this, this could actually uh, challenge or jeopardize its, uh, its relationship with the US. How do you see that evolving? Yeah. I think it's a it's a great point. I, I I have been very nervous about this issue because I don't think it's good for Israel to become a bipartisan issue. I think it's important that it have support on the Republican side, but also on the Democrat side. And I think we can disagree at times amongst ourselves about which actions we would love for Israel to take. But generally, we should, I hope, be moving forward with this idea that one that is staunchly pro-Israel, because I think they're you know, extraordinarily important and, uh, you know, really a beacon for, for the Middle East. But I think sometimes we might also over-exaggerate the potential risk. There was a vote, I think it was last week, uh, in the House, which was in honor of the 75th anniversary, and it was 401 in support of Israel and the Abraham Accords, which was a component of the vote. And 19 opposed, one Republican and 18 Democrats. And while I'm told that in the past, perhaps that vote would have been unanimous, that's still a pretty wide uh, margin of victory. Uh, now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be nervous that some percentage of the Democratic Party, 18 of, you know, of their current House members, have an anti, uh, at least, again, I don't know if they're anti-Israel. They claim that the issue was, with it was that it didn't specifically address the Palestinian issue, this resolution. But of course, whenever you add to resolutions, you complicate them and you're going to lose votes. So I think yes, the idea was to keep it as simple as possible. Um, but, but I do think that the relationship is still in a, in a very strong place. And I'll say to President Biden's credit, I think that he uh, is considered to be a very, very strong supporter of Israel, and I hope that his administration uh, continues to be so. Um, you know, it, it was interesting that the Abraham Accords, I think, has helped in this issue in that recently there was a, there's an Abraham Accords caucus, which is a bipartisan group of senators. Um, and they, they went, I think there were 11 senators um, and they went to all of the Abraham Accords countries, or some of them, so at least Israel and the UAE and Bahrain. I think they might have also gone to Morocco, but I could be mistaken. And when they came back, the report that they gave, you know, it, you, you couldn't tell which party they were from when you listened to what they were saying, which I think is extremely important to Senator Gillibrand from New York, uh, who's considered to be extremely liberal, uh, was, was extremely positive on on the Abraham Accords, and, and obviously I'm very appreciative of that. So I think the Abraham Accords lives in this very unique place in, in our current dialogue and time, which is that it tends to have tremendous support from all, 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 you know, all sections of the aisle, and also from Europe, from, uh, from other countries, Singapore, I, you know, I, I think supports it. Uh, in my time here, I've, I've only had positive conversations about it. Uh, so I, I think the Abraham Accords is, is a really important vision of, 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 of what we can work on together so that we can take the conversation forward. But, you know, I can't help but think about the Palestinian people because if you come back to it right now, there isn't, as I understand it, a specific U.S. proposal that has been put forward to advance peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And the last plan that had been put out was the Trump plan, which was in January of 2020. Well, what has happened then in the last three years or, you know, or so to, to really advance the cause of peace between Israel and the Palestinians? And I, you, know, you can't really think of a specific, a specific example. And it's sad because you have people whose lives hanging in this balance. And I, I don't know at this actual very moment what the position of many countries is, is, is the best next step 
to move forward that conflict. Uh, so, you know, I think Israel is in a really exciting place. I think 75 years it's accomplished, I think more than anyone could have really hoped for considering the hostilities that it has faced. But I also think that it's really important for the next 75 years that that conflict be addressed. And so I hope, I hope that somebody puts forward, you know, something that leads to additional steps uh, for that conflict. Thank you very much. Uh, let me turn to the audience. If there are any questions left, I think we uh, uh, bombed you with a lot of <laughs> questions. So uh, if uh, there isn't, uh, and I don't think we have any uh, more questions on Zoom, I suggest uh, we stop here. And let me thank you very much uh, on behalf of the Middle East Institute for taking uh, time uh, during your, uh, your stay in Singapore. Uh, to discuss with us uh, about the Abraham Accords, its present and its future. Uh, you're more than welcome to join us again. Thank you. Uh, and uh, I hope you enjoy uh, the rest of your stay uh, in Singapore. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you, everybody, who uh, listened.